Welcome to Celebrate Poe. My name is George Bartley, and this is episode 139. Where did he get that idea? Now, before we start, you might hear the word Timur, T-I-M-U-R, or Tamberland or Tamerlane in this podcast episode, but don't be confused. Timur, Tamberland, and Tamerlane are all the same person. Now, uh, while it's true that Poe's poem, Tamerlane, shares the name of the historical Tamerlane, the poem basically has more differences than similarities to the original character of Tamerlane, the mass murderer. The bottom line is that uh, we just don't know the exact source. Oh, there are lots of contenders as inspiration for Poe's Tamerlane, but nothing really definite. And uh, as anyone who listened to last week's Celebrate Poe knows, the historical Tamerlane, again also referred to as Timur or Tamerlane, T-A-M-B-E-R-L-A-N-E, killed millions of people. But many scholars believe that Western civilization seems to have a blind spot regarding Tamerlane's actions because Tamerlane overcame the Ottoman Empire, a civilization that many scholars believed would have defeated Western civilization if it had not been stopped by Tamerlane and his forces. It's At the same time, it's ironic that rulers of European countries actually had treaties with Tamerlane, rulers that the historical Tamerlane would have easily killed if he'd had half the chance. Now, one of the greatest early achievements in English drama was Tamerlane, a fictional account of Tamerlane's life by Christopher Marlowe. The play is believed to have a tremendous influence, have had a tremendous influence on William Shakespeare and all English drama in general. Tamburlaine has two parts, two very long parts that take, well, take great liberties with historical facts. But I'm just going to go over two rather brief quotes from, a, again, a very long play. One of the most famous parts of Tamburlaine the Great uh, is, or are these lines from the first part of Act One, Scene Two. I hold the fates bound fast in iron chains, and with my hand turn fortune's wheel about, and sooner shall the sun fall from his sphere than Tamburlaine be slain or overcome. These four lines are a very concise expression of Tamburlaine's tremendous ambition. Instead of just the fates being in charge, Marlowe has Tamburlaine the Great very much in charge. In other words, Marlowe has Tamburlaine himself, not some outside force like many plays of the past. He has Tamburlaine, the individual, controlling his actions. Perhaps the most famous lines of Tamburlaine the Great Part Two are, Nature that framed us of four elements, warring within our breasts for regiment, doth teach us all to have aspiring minds. 
Our souls, whose faculties can comprehend the wondrous architecture of the world and measure every wandering planet's course, still climbing after knowledge infinite and always moving as the restless fears wills us to wear ourselves and never rest until we reach that ripest fruit of all, that perfect bliss and soul felicity, the sweet fruition of an earthly crown. These lines contain an entire theory of human nature with such awe-inspiring phrases as such with such imagery as the wondrous architecture of the world. I really like that line, the wondrous architecture of the world. You see here Tamburlaine recasts the endless striving that's inherent in human nature as a gift, a notion a notion that's fundamentally at odds with his too neat resolution settling on the permanent satisfaction promised by an earthly crown. That's, well, it's really heavy stuff, and a theme that Shakespeare explores over and over in such history plays as Richard III, Henry V, and, of course, the two parts of Henry IV. Now, the reason I'm going into all this is that uh, noted Poe scholar Killis Campbell has pointed out that the plot of Poe's poem Tamburlaine follows in broad outline the life story of the warrior Tamerlane, but only in broad outline. Onto this is grafted a fanciful love story. We just don't know for sure how Poe was first drawn to the story. Now, while at school in London, uh, he was an excellent student and certainly had the opportunity to come across Tamburlaine as a historical figure. Kind of like a high school student today, being familiar with such Civil War generals as Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, or uh, becoming familiar with Shakespeare, uh, he could have, uh, well, very well come across Christopher Marlowe's Tamberlin the Great, parts one and two. The, drama, the dramatists Nicholas Rowe, or R-O-W-E, and Monk Lewis also wrote works regarding Tamberlane that uh, Poe might have seen or read. Nicholas Rowe, R-O-W-E, or Rao, is generally agreed to be the first editor of Shakespeare. His practical knowledge of the stage helped him divide the plays into scenes with the entrances and exits of the players noted. So this guy really knew his way around the stage, and he understood Shakespeare. Note that the folio, the first, which is the first uh, publication of all of Shakespeare's plays except for Pericles, does not divide the plays into scenes and acts at all. And Monk Lewis... Uh, well, he was really one weird dude. In addition to a drama about Tamerlane, he wrote a play called The Captive. In what sounds like an over-the-top story by a mature Poe, the story of The Captive is about a woman denied any human contact and kept in a modern dungeon. She's not mad, but realizes that with her conditions, she probably will soon be a, become a maniac. It was said that uh, even the staff of the theater left in horror. The play was only staged once. 
Well, but be that as it may, again, there's no definite proof that Poe was familiar with the historical Tamerlane or the plays by Nicholas Rowe or Rao or Monk Lewis concerning Tamerlane. For another theory regarding where Poe could have first been exposed to Tamerlane, let's take a break and look at some of uh, some theaters in Richmond, and I think this part is really cool. Now, let's go back to the night of December the 26th, 1811 in Richmond, Virginia. The Allen family would probably have attended the special performance that night at the Richmond Theater. They were definitely avid theater goers. And, uh, well, uh, they were spending the Christmas holidays with the Randolphs at Turkey Island instead. Now, on the night after Christmas, many of Richmond's most influential citizens were attending the theater at the Richmond Theater. And as you might imagine, uh, the uh, crowd was quite joyous and spirited as a result of the Christmas season. It seemed that almost all of the leading citizens of Richmond, such as lawyers, doctors, scholars, and all those of prominence were in attendance, not knowing the fate that was awaiting them. The wealthier members of the audience tended to occupy the three levels of box seats, Furthermore, to gain entrance to the box levels, playgoers were forced to descend into a narrow, a narrow corridor of considerable length, climb a narrow and winding staircase, and finally pass through a single narrow door. This was the only accessible exit for people in the boxes, audience members who tended to be rather wealthy, Excellent seats, but quite clumsy if one needed to leave hastily. The playgoers who bought cheaper seats sat in the balcony sections. The balcony section was naturally higher than the box seats, but had the benefit of being able to be accessed far more easily from the outside. The staircase to the outside was relatively roomy, a building characteristic that was to save many lives. Theater actors and workers were also able to gain access uh, to the street quickly through private exit doors in the galleries and pit. Unfortunately, not many audience members knew about these doors, a fact which also resulted in the loss of life that night. The first billing of the night had the crowd rolling with laughter and later cheering wildly with applause. The audience or orchestra then began a brief musical interlude while the theater workers prepared the stage for the second act. Workers then instructed a boy to lift one of the chandeliers so that it couldn't be seen. While he was raising the lamp, the boy realized that one of the chandelier's two oil candles was still burning, and he hesitated to act further. However, an individual in authority told him not to stop, but continue to pull the chandelier upward. But the pulley system that was used to pull the chandelier upward froze. So the boy jerked one of the pulley ropes trying to free the me mechanism. 
Now, this jerk on the rope caused the chandelier to swing back and forth, and it became obvious that the chandelier just couldn't be controlled. Witnesses later said uh, that a stage carpenter yelled, Put the chandelier out! But it was too late. The light fixture swung back and forth and brushed up against one of the sceneries, setting it on fire. As the second act began, a comic by the name of Mr. West was on stage completely oblivious to the reality that was going on behind him. Stage personnel were working frantically to tear down burning pieces and extinguish the flames. It's said that some of the audience thought this was an extremely realistic rendition of a burning fire and were uh, initially either amazed or confused, or both. The comic became alarmed when he saw flakes of fire falling. He stopped his act and hurried behind the scene. Mr. West saw that the flames were spreading rapidly and began to help others in attempting to control the fire. Moments later, he and several other actors gave up and fled to the street. Then one of the leading actors of the event, Mr. Hopkins Robertson, stepped alone onto the stage with the intention of communicating to the audience to quickly and calmly leave the house. But he glanced around and saw that the flames were were rapidly spreading across the theater and yelled out, The house is on fire! The audience then began to scramble in a mad rush to leave the building. Most of the actors and orchestra members fled to the street comparatively easily through private doors. Most of the playgoers in the balcony were, were also able to leave safely through private doors. But people in the boxes panicked and were forced to fight their way through narrow and winding passages. One might say that the scene of the Richmond Theater was nothing short of hellish. The building was filled with thick black smoke, while the playgoers' screams increased. Many were to die of suffocation. Others were trampled to death or crushed by falling structures. Some people were badly burned but able to escape, only to die later from these burns. Not surprisingly, it was difficult to think logically amid all the panic, and few people in the box seats realized that they could leave the burning theater relatively easily by jumping down into the pit below. You see, the pit was almost vacant and had an easily accessible exit. But it seemed that almost everything in the building was combustible, including the oil-painted sceneries, the draperies, and the many panels and boxes on stage. Combined with an inadequate means of escape, the building was a death trap. Theatergoers ran with, the, with their clothes on fire while they were screaming in agony. Some of them felt there was no foreseeable way out and leaped out of the high windows. Initially, some of the jumpers suffered broken bones when they hit the hard ground, while others were crushed to death when other jumpers fell on them. Within 10 minutes after the start of the fire, the entire Richmond Theater was engulfed in flames, and by this point, anybody trapped inside this inside was surely dead. 
The fire finally burned all night, leaving behind it just a few smoldering timbers and several charred bodies. This was the worst urban disaster in America up to that time. Just hours after flames left the Richmond Theater in ruins, a committee was appointed to have the remains of those who perished in the fire collected to identify the names of the victims and to plan their funerals. Collected bodies were buried in a crypt of the spot where the playhouse once stood. The city of Richmond was extremely shaken by what happened at their only theater public. Shows of any kind were prohibited for four months, and stores in the area were closed two consecutive days for mourning. A memorial monument was also erected near the spot in honor of the victims and to serve as a permanent reminder of the horrible holocaust that had occurred. The monumental church was erected on the site of the disaster as a memorial to the fire. For an even more detailed account of the Richmond Theater fire, refer to episode 12 of Celebrate Poe, Richmond Theater, Part 1, which deals with the fire itself. The subjects of episode 13 in in this podcast uh, include one of the heroes of the Richmond fire as as well as one of the heroes of 9-11. Now, the reason I'm talking about the Richmond Fire is to hopefully hopefully give you an idea of how important the theater was to Richmond City culture and point out that a second theater was built to replace the cultural theater that had been incinerated. One of the productions of that second theater was an 1811 play called Timur, T-I-M-O-U-R, The Tartar. This was known as a hippodrome play, and no, the play had nothing to do with hippopotami. The term hippodrome basically meant a play featuring horses. Not surprisingly, the concept was controversial, but plays featuring horses were popular for the next 50 years. I do know a few years ago there was a musical of Gone with the Wind that featured a horse on stage in London. The play must have been a flop because I think about the only thing that you hear about it was that there was a horse on stage. And when you think about it, Gone with the Wind is a very long novel and has a rather complicated story. And with half of its song, then it would be a very long musical. But I digress. According to theatrical advertisements in Richmond newspapers of the time, Tim Muir the Tartar was presented in the Richmond Theater three times on July the 2nd, or excuse me, July the 12th, July the 17th, and October the 25th, 1822. Now, Harvard University has a facsimile of the play Timur the Tartar for a free online, and in the second act, Timur says, The gay wall of this gaudy tower grows dim around me. Death is near. I have not thought until this hour when passing from the earth, that ear of any, were it not the shade of one whom in life I made, all mystery, but a simple name, might know the secret of a spirit bowed down in in sorrow and in shame. 
Now, in Poe's version, he also writes about a tower as Tamerlane makes his confession to a priest. An odd jump because the real Tamerlane was definitely not Roman Catholic. So, did the young Poe see Timur the Tartar? Could the words of this play put the idea of a tower and a Roman Catholic priest somehow on the back of his head? Will will we ever know? And does it really matter? Anyway, the historical Tamerlane's life ended when he and his army of 200,000 soldiers traveled through the deep snow and frozen rivers toward China, eventually stopping for a rest. Tamerlane, who was rather advanced in years, especially for 600 years ago, caught a cold and died on the journey. The trip to China stopped, and his body was taken home to his beloved city of Samarkand. Here he was buried beneath the dome of a huge mausoleum in a steel coffin under a slab of black jade six feet long. On the stone was inscribed, quote, This is the resting place of the illustrious and merciful monarch, the most great sultan, the most mighty warrior, Lord Timur, conqueror of the world, unquote. In contrast, the Tamerlane of Poe's poem dies after he has made his confession to a priest. Now, remember that the character of Tamerlane confessing to a priest was basically Poe's invention. Poe's Tamerlane ends with the lines, I reached my home, my home no more, for all had flown who made it so. I passed from out its mossy door, and though my tread was soft and low, a voice came from the threshold stone of one whom I had earlier known. Oh, I defy thee, hell to show on beds of fire that burn below, and humbler heart, a deeper woe. Father, I firmly do believe, I know for death who comes for me, from regions of the blessed afar, where there is nothing to deceive, hath left his iron gate ajar, and rays of truth you cannot see are flashing through eternity. I wandered of the idle love who daily sends his snowy wings with incense of burnt offerings from the most unpolluted things whose pleasant bowers are yet so riven above with trellic rays from heaven. No moat shall shun, no tiniest fly, the lightning of his eagle eye. How was it that ambition crept unseen amid the revels there? till, growing bold, he laughed and leapt in the tangles of love's very hair. Not exactly Poe's greatest. I think it would really be pushing it to call almost any element of the life of the historical Tamerlane a love story, an over-the-top supervillain story, but certainly not a love story. On the other hand, Poe's version of Tamerlane largely ignores historical facts and does show elements of a love story, or at least a man who wishes that he had paid more attention to the love of his life. The love story which Poe weaves into his plot could easily be a reflection of his own love affair with Miss Sarah Elmira Royster of Richmond. 
Just as the Tamerlane of his poem has lost his love, Poe could be referring to Miss Royster because she married another suitor. According to Killis Campbell, Edgar Allan Poe must certainly have been aware of the imperfections of Tamerlane. It's comparative feebleness, it's obscurity, and it's barrenness of style, not to mention its lack of originality. In the preface of 1827, he confesses that the poem has many faults, and in a note to the edition of 1845, he refers to Tamerlane, along with other early poems, as the crude compositions of my earliest boyhood. In conclusion, Tamerlane definitely does have its imperfections, but it points to far greater things to come for Edgar Allan Poe. Now, next week, we'll have a visit from an interesting ghost. And I'm not talking about the ghost of Mr. Poe, but the imagined ghosts of the mass murderer and highly influential historical Tamerlane. So join Celebrate Poe for a really fun episode, and you just might learn something from the ghost of Tamerlane, considered by many to be one of history's most evil men. Sources include Tamburlaine the Great, Parts 1 and 2 by Christopher Marlowe, The Castle Castle of Otrano by Monk Lewis, The Poems of Edgar Allan Poe, edited by Killis Campbell, Tim Muir the Tartar by Matthew Lewis, and an extremely helpful work, Tim Muir the Tartar and Poe's Tamburlaine by Martin Staples Shockley. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe, a deep dive into the life, times, and works of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm.